Well, once again, good morning. My name is Pastor Ransom Kent. Thank you for joining us here at Grace Presbyterian Church for our streaming virtual worship. We continue in our series on First and Second Kings. Uh, it's our second message in the series, and I'll be reading this morning from First Kings 1, 1 through 10. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you'd like, follow along as I read this passage to you. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. And so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful. She was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, Adoniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run beforehand, before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, excuse me, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adoniah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Beniah, and the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adoniah. Adoniah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, thank you for these stories of old. I do pray that you would help us to understand our place in your salvation, our place in your kingdom, our place in your love and your promises as we hear about this story between David and his son, Adoniah. I pray that you would be with us this morning, that the Spirit would be present, that we would hear your word as you would have us to hear it. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So let's recap. Last week we looked at Saul, the first king of Israel. We saw how he sinned in in not waiting upon the Lord. He did the sacrifices when Samuel was late. And what happened? He was rejected from being the king of Israel. Of Israel, And so it says right there in that passage from 1 Samuel 13 that God was seeking another, and that other was David. And so to kind of fast forward and get us to where we, we start this morning, David um, was chosen and anointed at a young age. The, the prophet and priest Samuel came to the house of Jesse, David's father, and Jesse had eight sons. And Samuel said, Jesse, I'm going to anoint one of your sons as the king. And so David was the youngest and the least significant, and so the Seven older brothers came, and uh, Samuel said, it's none of these, and the one whom he wanted was the one they left out with the sheep. Uh, David was out left tending the pastures, and they brought him in, and he was anointed as the next king of Israel. And so he earned <clears throat> fame among the people. He still is famous, uh, even culturally now, uh, as he defeated the giant Goliath. So David, as a young boy, defeating Goliath made him very famous. Now, um, leading up to his 
a time to, to be king, to sit on the throne. He actually waited 20 years or more between his anointing and ascending to the throne. Uh, but during that time, he was referred to as a man after God's own heart. Uh, I want to just touch on that briefly. Uh, the reason he is referred to that in that way or in that title is because a few things. One, he loved God's law. Saul did not. Saul did not uh, respect God's law. David did. Uh, his, he believed in God's promises. Saul never did. He was a practical man. He was not a spiritual man. But I think more importantly than any of that, when David sinned, so being a man after God's own heart did not mean he was perfect. And when David sinned, what did he do? He repented. He turned from his sin. He, he confessed it fully and openly to the Lord and received forgiveness. And so as David becomes king, you can look at 2 Samuel 7. If you want to look in depth at this uh, more later, you can. And God makes a covenant, an agreement, a promise to David. It says this in 2 Samuel 7.16. This is God speaking to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so God is making a covenant, an agreement, and He's saying, listen, as your sons are faithful to me and, and as one who comes who will obey my commandments, He will sit on the throne of your lineage forever. Now, this is partially referring to Solomon because some of that passage is talking about building the temple, but ultimately, spoiler alert, this is referring to Jesus Christ. We'll get to that later in the passage. But the point here is that God makes this promise to David, your throne will last forever. Your kingdom will last forever. I will be with you forever. And what are the events of David's life after that? Let me recap. First of all, very soon after this passage, David commits adultery and murder. He is in a lazy time of his life. He's not at battle like kings ought to be. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba and he desires her and, and he takes her as his wife. He has her husband murdered. And they have a child from that. Uh, beyond that, his eldest son Amnon, which the Bible makes very clear, David never disciplined. He never corrected Amnon. Amnon assaults one of David's daughters from another wife. Uh, her brother Absalom ends up taking revenge because David does not do anything about this assault. And, and he murders Amnon at a party. He hosts a feast and he murders Amnon there. Brother against brother violence. And so, even then, after Absalom takes his revenge, David never deals with the situation of Amnon and Absalom and, and Absalom's sister. And so, as a result of that, Absalom grows very bitter, and he ends up throwing a coup and kicking David off his throne and ruling in his place for a time. Absalom ends up dying uh, in battle against his father. He dies. Which leaves uh, one of the characters from the story, Adoniah, as the eldest son of David. David's life is not going great, and the last thing that is recorded in 2 Samuel as the act of King David, he decides uh, to take a census. Now, we uh, have a census uh, every several years here in America, and so that doesn't seem like a huge deal to us, but in this time when God said, I am the power of Israel, I am the God of Israel, he said, do not take a census, because a census in that time was saying, how powerful am I as a king, rather than looking at God as their power and their faithful uh, Lord and God. And so David, it says he takes the census, and then it says in the Scripture, David's heart struck him as soon as he had done it. He realized he had sinned greatly. And so David's kingship, I want you to see this, it didn't go perfectly. The man after God's own heart did not lead in a way that seemed honorable at times. 
is very dishonorable. And so then it arrives here at 1 Kings 1, and um, I want to show you from 1 Kings 1 what is the status of David at this point. Keeping in mind, he is the one whom God has made this great covenant and promise to in 2 Samuel 7. He's the one who has defeated Goliath as a young boy, a great soldier, a great king. Where is he now in 1 Kings 1? Let's take a look. First of all, in verse 1, now King David was old and advanced in years. They estimate at this point he's about 70 years old. And at 70 years old, he's having some circulation issues. Look at the second part of verse 1. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. He just couldn't stay warm. His health is failing. And so, uh, because of this, he needs a nurse. He needs someone to attend to him. And so, they go out and um, they find, of course, Abishag the Shunammite. Uh, That's a great name there. So, if you're thinking about having a child soon, Abishag the Shunammite, it should be on your list. Um, Anyway, there's a lot of different ways you could interpret what's going on in verses 3 and 4. A lot of good scholars are divided on what exactly is happening here, but either way you interpret it, here's what's happening. David, his life and his power are both waning. That's the point. David is not a strong, vital king. He is a weak, cold king. So if you want to remember it in a little rhyme, I made this up, and you'll you'll probably want to write it down. David is old and cold. Adoniah was not, and he is hot. We'll see that later in the passage. Um, And so here we have David in this fragile state. And then enters Adoniah in verse 5. And what the author really wants you to understand, that we have King David, great King David, sinner, but a good king. God made promises to him. He's there. He's still alive. He is weakened. And in that weakened state, he wants you to see Adoniah, his eldest living son, as extremely arrogant. Let's take a look at some of the things that the author's pointing out out for us. So in verse 5, now Adoniah, the son of Haggith, one of David's wives, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And so this idea that Adoniah is exalting himself, he is, he, he is choosing himself as king. Now you may not know the answer to this, so I'm going to give you the answer, but if you could guess who was in charge of picking the next king of Israel? It's God. And, and generally, what would happen is God would anoint a king. The, the tribal elders would come and affirm that choice. Not that they had a choice, but they would at least be in on saying, we agree to this, we, we submit ourselves to this. And what is interesting and on purpose in verse 5 is neither one of those things are present. Adoniah himself is anointing himself in a sense, choosing himself. He's exalting himself. The job of the tribal elders would have been to say, yes, you are our king. He's saying, yes, I am your king. And so, no tribal leaders, no God. Adoniah is arrogantly claiming the throne for himself. And not only that, but his father is still alive. And so what kind of man would declare himself king while his father, the king, is still living? Verse 6 gives us that answer. There's three things here. First of all, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So this word displeased is not a great translation from the ESV. Other Bibles get it, uh, I think, a little more clearly. But the idea here is his father had never disciplined him. The, The modern use of this word in Hebrew means to stretch a child into shape, meaning to to set boundaries and and train and teach and and discipline. David 
This is not the first time he's failed at that. We learned about Amnon and even Absalom. This is his third son who's caused him problems because David would not father them effectively. So he's got, he's got a spoiled child here. And so um, you know, he says, he's never asked him, why have you done thus and so? That's not something we commonly say to our children. Silas, why have you done thus and so? Deacon, why have you done thus and so? No, what that means is, why are you behaving that way? David has never rebuked his son Adoniah. It's, it's a, it's a, it has a result. And what is that result? He's arrogantly taking the throne. The verse goes on. He was also a very handsome man. Now, uh, that is a compliment in our language. Here, it is noting the vanity that comes with being known for your good looks. And so here, we, not only has he never been disciplined, he thinks very highly of himself, as others do, because he is a good-looking man. Thirdly, he is entitled. It says here, he was born next after Absalom, meaning he is next in line. Now, that's not how the succession plan of Israel is lined out. God chooses the next king, and he has chosen Solomon already. But here, he is saying, no, I'm the next oldest. I am the next in line. I will make myself king. I am good looking. And, and he has no sense of what good boundaries or respect for his father looks like. And so in his arrogance, he declares himself king. Adonai is arrogantly doing this. And what does he do? He throws himself a coronation party. So uh, look at verses 7 and 9. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah. As you can tell, it's very, it rolls off the tongue. And Abiathar, the priest, and they, were, and they followed Adonai and helped him. Here's what's happening. There's a lot going on. Joab is a military leader. Zeruiah is, is a political leader. Abiathar is a religious leader. Adonai is, is gathering the, the, the corners of the kingdom, the different uh, subjects that he would need to, to make a, a real go at taking the throne. He needs political and religious and, and military power behind him. He then, in verse 9, it says, he sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted, fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. Now, this sounds nefarious to us, mostly because we've probably watched Harry Potter or read the book. The serpent stone sounds very evil. Uh, this is actually a very normal thing. If, if Whoever would be king next would have done something very similar. And so this is a normal and acceptable thing. But the problem is here is he is doing it on his own will. Of his own accord, he's saying, I am now the king. Arrogantly, he's claiming that. In verses 8 and 10, we see that he is not inviting his enemies. And so, Nathan the prophet is not invited. The prophet at this time in Israel's history was essential to the, the placement of a new king. The prophet would have heard from God. Samuel, having passed now, would have, it was Nathan now who would hear from God and, and pass that message on. He already had that it was Solomon who would be king. And of course, you see that Solomon is not invited. Why? Because already it is well known that this is David's favored son and God's anointed to be the next king. One scholar uh, made the, uh, the observation that uh, there's a chance that these men were left off the invitation list on a, in a, with a very evil purpose at hand. Uh, apparently back then, it was socially unacceptable to kill your guests at a party. Things have really changed since then. Um, and so if they had showed up thinking they were invited, it would have given Adonai an opportunity to eliminate them, his, his rivals. And so you see the story. King David is ill. His son, arrogant, is stomping on his legacy, trying to steal the throne out from underneath him. 
Why this passage? <laughs> I was talking with one of my elders this week, and I, he asked how things were going. I said, yeah, it's a really interesting passage that I picked. And he said, yeah, it's a weird one. So, I mean, I understand. There's, it, you, some of you may be thinking, what, are we, what does this possibly have to do with me? It's supposed to be about God's plan through changing times. And if we're talking about King David, why not do David and Goliath or some of these other well-known stories? It's a good question. The reason I picked this passage, I think it's important for us to observe this moment at the end of David's life. I think it's very important for us to observe that. You see, he, he's here. He's not going to live much longer, let alone forever. I mean, God's promise to him, I will establish your throne forever. He, David's not going to live forever. He, his life is very near its end. There is no clear succession plan, at least to the people of Israel. And there, He's only the second king, and there's really no regular way of replacing him. That leads to uncertainty. There you see, the consequences of David's sin here at the end of his life are being visited upon him still. Yet another ungoverned son acting boorishly. Yet the, 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 the favored son is the son of scandal. You see, Solomon is Bathsheba's son. And so this moment in David's life in verses 1-4 through four, by human standards is rather pathetic. It's pathetic. He's old and cold. And yet... In this frail and weak state that we observe David in, what is still true of David? What is still true? Putting it another way, even though David has been and is still a sinful man and has been his whole life and his, his rule is pockmarked with awful things that he has done, even though that is true, even though the natural consequences of his sin are still being apparent, visited upon him, and even though his power is waning and his son is trampling all over his legacy, what is still true about David? I don't do this very often. We're going to turn in our Bibles to another passage of Scripture. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a, 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 what they might call an exegesis of the, of the covenant that God made with David. And you can read the whole thing through. It's very interesting. I'm going to be looking at verses 28 through 35 of Psalm 89. Again, Psalm 89, verses 28 through 35. Turn there. So the question is what is still true of David in this frail state, in this weak, pathetic place that we find him in 1 Kings? What is still true? Let's take a look. God speaking here through the psalmist My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. Now, if his child forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, children, excuse me, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression and the rod of their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove him from my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. God is saying, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. So, what is true about David in this pathetic state? What is true? It is true that David is still loved by God, and it's still true that God's promises are true. Do you understand? You see, even in this pathetic state where his sins are catching up with him still and he has no power to rule and he's old and he's sickly, God's love stands eternally for David. 
And what is the reason for that love? What's the reason? Is it because David doesn't sin? Absolutely not. Is it because he's really good at resisting temptation? No. Is it because he is a great parent and he really raises his sons to be great human beings and good citizens? No. Obviously not. Is it because he has the power to rule? No, he does not have it. He is losing his grip on the kingdom. So I turn to verses 33 and 35 to get the answer. What is the answer? Why does God love him? I will not remove my steadfast love or be false to what? My faithfulness, says God. I, says God, will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Now, in this passage, will sin be punished on David's ancestors as David, the kings follow David's line and they transgress against God? Will there be punishment? Yes, there will. But listen, God's love will carry, God will love and carry out his promises to put a king on the throne of David and to love David and his people forever. Why? Why does God promise that? Why is this still true of David in a pathetic state? Because God has set His will to do so. God has said He would do it, and therefore it is true. You see, David is not the hero of his own story. David is not this great anointed king who would perfectly lead God's people all the way through eternity. That's not why God made that promise to him. And so part of the reason he's considered a man after God's own heart is because he realizes that. He knows he's not the perfect king. He knows he's not the one whom God has promised to sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. And so we have to understand that David is a gracious recipient of God's favor. He's he's a gracious recipient of God's promises. He's a gracious recipient of God's love. He did not earn it. He did not deserve it. 100% undeserved grace that's why david is still loved in first kings one as a quick side note i think we have to understand this with all old testament heroes right Uh, we ought not to try and emulate anything about david or other heroes samson moses gideon whoever abraham We ought not to try and emulate David in any other way or any of those men in any other way other than their repentance and faith. As they believe in God's promises, that's how we ought to be. As they repent of their awful brokenness, that's how we ought to be. And so David is not a king to be admired. You understand? He's not somebody to be like, wow, I wish I were like King David in any other way other than his faith and repentance. And so in that idea, he is not a man to be admired. He is a broken man to be resonated with. Man, I understand that. That's me. His brokenness, that's me. His temptation, giving into that, that's me. His bad parenting, that's me. So back to the sermon at hand. And so... What does any of this have to do with me? (laughs) What does any of this have to do with us? You see, this passage actually highlights, connecting it with Psalm 89, highlights a, a foundational concept that's essential, essential to the understanding of the gospel, the 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 good news of the Christian faith. And here is that thing. Here's that essential piece of information. That concept is this: God's Steadfast love depends on His promises 
not our performance. Just like David, if we took the whole of his life and we weighed and measured his performance, it was lackluster at best. And yet, in his frailty, in his pathetic state in 1 Kings, what is true? God loves him. And in our pathetic state, what is true? God loves those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so, church, this story of a unruly, arrogant son stomping all over his sickly father's legacy in a secondary sense is about you and me. It's about you and me. Let me explain. I'm trying to do this carefully and clearly. I want you to understand this. The question then is, okay, well, what is God accomplishing through the kings of Israel? What's God trying to accomplish? And so you think about this. He just made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David. I'm going to make your kingdom last forever. It's going to be grand. It's going to flourish. It's going to grow. It's going to take over the whole world and you're going to have a righteous king sit on that throne. So he makes that promise. And then, later, as the kings are failing and failing and failing, this verse comes from the prophet Isaiah. Much later, after David. So follow me here. There shall come forth a shoot, listen to this, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of of the Lord. So think about this. God made a promise to David of this flourishing kingdom. And then the first thing he does, starting with King David, is God begins to systematically chop down that tree. Do you see? He chops down that tree. The whole purpose of the kings, human kings in Israel, is to dismantle the myth that of the sufficiency of a human leader over God's people. It will never be sufficient, starting with and including the one whom God made the promise to. And so what happens? God makes the promise and immediately with David begins laying his axe at the root of the tree. Why? So that from the stump of Jesse, a, a, a shoot may appear. So we can learn, first of all, that no human leader can ever be sufficient. Ever. In any circumstance. No human leader can fulfill the things we desire them to fulfill. I was reading a sermon from, second, from John Piper on 2 Samuel 7, and he says this, So they came to see that a son of David must be coming who would fulfill the conditions of the covenant, thinking about the promise that God had made to sit on David's throne and rule forever. However, a succession of imperfect kings could never fulfill the promise. So if God were true to His Word, if He stuck by His job description in 2 Samuel 7, he would have to raise up a righteous, obedient son of David to take the throne. And so, the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, only a perfectly righteous king could ever be good enough to rule God's people. So we have to understand from that. God promises that. And he promises it through the line of David. And so this is where it leads to you and me. This is where it has to connect with our lives. You see, the one who is righteous, the one who is perfect, the one who can actually lead God's people to obedience has come. Past tense for us. His name is Jesus Christ. So this story, what does it point to? It points to Jesus 
It points to His love for us. The story about David and Adoniah. It tells us, listen, you don't need a human leader. Why? A human leader will always let you down. You don't need a human leader to save you. Why? Because the King you have, King Jesus, has already done it. In Advent this year, we're going to be going through Matthew, and one of those passages is the lineage of David, and so or the lineage of Jesus, which includes King David. So it'll be interesting to read that. But from Luke 1, 31 and through 33, listen to this. Here's what the angel says to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And listen to this. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. King Jesus reigns on the throne of David. God fulfilled his own promise. And as Piper continues in the sermon from 2 Samuel 7, he, he makes that same statement. He says, The surety of the covenant with David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as king and sit upon the throne. When a covenant is conditional and yet also certain, you can be sure of that God himself will intervene to fulfill the conditions. You see, Jesus is our perfect king. And what has he done? He sits on the throne. And what, is, what else has he done? He completes our side. Where it says here that, that the son of David would have to obey. And if you don't obey, there will be punishment. Jesus took that punishment because of our disobedience. He fulfilled the covenant. And he, what does he do now? What does King Jesus do now? He, he graciously calls us into his kingdom. Join my kingdom in faith. Believe in me, the, the son of David, the perfect and righteous king, to lead you. And so, simply, if we believe that Jesus is Lord, we believe that our Lord died for us and he rose in victory, if we believe that with our hearts, we will be saved. We will be part of his kingdom. As we look at 1 Kings 1, 1 through 10, I'd like to make two applications. There's two applications, kind of what does this mean for us or how do we apply this in the day to day? And there's two statements I want to make. First statement is this God is not calling perfect people to be his children. He's not calling perfect people to be his children. So we can breathe easy. We look at David, right? David was far from perfect. And so we have to understand that as we look at David's life and God's love for him here at the pathetic end, we understand that God is faithful to us in the same way. God is faithful to us in the same way he was faithful to David, not because of our performance, not because of how good at parenting we are, not because of how great we are at leading, or not because how amazing we are at anything, or how good we are at resisting the temptation to lust, or all those things. Why are we loved by God? Why are we loved? And why is that love faithful and steadfast? It's because it's His love for us. It is steadfast. It's because it's for His glory, His plan, His promise. It's dependent on God. I wrote here that God loves us unconditionally as we are found in Jesus Christ by faith. And so this non-work of faith, the way I describe it is flopping yourself on Jesus. I can't do it. As we flop ourselves on Him, it puts us in a position to be loved by God, made possible only through the work of Jesus Christ. So it's the first thing. first thing I want you to understand is that God is not calling perfect people to be His children. So we can breathe easy. We can breathe easy. 
The second thing I want you to hear is this. God is calling His children to pursue perfection. Wait, wait, wait a second. What? You just said He doesn't call perfect people. Yes, I did. And God is, after He calls us in, what is He asking of us to do? He's asking us to pursue perfection. Now understand, this pursuit is under the promise and the guarantee of grace. And so, what is the motivation as we pursue to be more like Christ? To stand up and dust ourselves off after we sin. It's the fact that we are forgiven and there is grace. And it's not held against us. But what are we called to do? Now, remember from King Saul, he had one job. What is the job of the king? The king is to obey God, check for Jesus, and to lead the people into obedience after him. And so, yes, salvation is free. Praise the Lord. But think of it this way. Jesus was not an, is not an ineffective father, in a sense, like David. He disciplines. He stretches us into a certain form. He wants us to be like Christ. He wants us to transform our minds and our hearts to be like Him. And so the question then is, well, will, will we attain perfection by a long shot? No, we won't. No way. Not happening. It doesn't happen that way. We won't be perfect. But what is our task? Our task is not to be perfect. Our task is to throw our effort <clears throat> into seeking God and His will. If you are listening this morning and you do not know Jesus, here's what I want you to hear from these two applications. First of all, the primary thing you need to be concerned with is faith. Faith. You see, God is not calling you because you are perfect or because you're grand or because you're wonderful or handsome or any of these things that we read about today. God's not calling you because of that. God, God is, if He's calling your name, He's calling you because He loves you. And I want to tell you for sure that no matter the things you have done in your life, your sin cannot stand in the way of faith. Flop yourself on Jesus. I need you to rescue me. I can't do it on my own. My sins are too heavy. And, and once that happens, once you come to Him in faith, get plugged into a local church. I, mean, that's, I know it's difficult in this time, but find someone you know that's a Christian and ask, ask them to do this. Disciple me. And as you grow in your faith, as you pursue knowing God and seeing what His will is for your life, here's what He's going to do. He will lead you toward maturity will lead you toward Christ. But the, the thing I want you to primarily worry about this morning is faith. Do you believe you need rescue? And if you do, have faith in Jesus Christ, the conquering King who sits on the throne of David forever. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do pray that this message of how you have worked through history using human leaders to Show us that we can only be saved by one, and that one is you. <laughs> no earthly human can satisfy our needs as a leader. We cannot be saved by a Republican or a Democrat. We cannot be saved by uh, this elder or that elder, or this pastor or that pastor, or that deacon or this deacon. Lord, we cannot be saved by humans. We are only saved by one, and that is Jesus Christ. And He sits on the throne. Our salvation has been won. May we rejoice in that. May we rest in that. 
And may we observe as we watch the kings of Israel fail and succeed and fail and succeed. May we watch you chopping down a tree that could never have given us what we wanted. Kings. Human kings. And may we see you making space for the shoot of Jesse, Jesus Christ, to come and lead us in righteousness and perfection and love. All based on your promises, not our performance. I pray that those things hit our heart and convict us this morning. Father, thank you for the technology to share in this worship service. I pray that you would bring us back together soon. I pray that you would arrest the coronavirus and the COVID-19 outbreak. I pray that you would make our nation healthy again, but not before you have done what you will to do. We love you. We pray all these things in the name of our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.